Okay, hear the word of, the, of God from Mark 15. You can follow along in your own Bibles or on the screen. Mark 15, verse 21 through 47. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He could not save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James the Younger, and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died, and summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph, and Joseph bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. Thank you. For the past few months, we've been in the book of Mark. And in this series, we've called Encounters with Jesus. We looked at different encounters Jesus had with different people, and we saw what Mark was trying to show us. We discovered that Mark was showing us not a simple carpenter, or a great teacher, or even a wonderful man. We see in his encounter with the paralyzed man that Jesus was announcing himself as the one who forgives sins. Namely, he was calling himself God. 
We see with his encounter with the 5,000 that Jesus was announcing himself as the king who provides for his people. We see in his encounter with John the Baptist that Mark is announcing Jesus as the son of God and seeing the inauguration of the kingdom. We see in the triumphal entry that Jesus is fulfilling the threefold office of the anointed one as prophet, priest, and king. We see in all these encounters that Jesus is the Son of God who came to suffer and die for our sins and to proclaim and inaugurate his kingdom. This was Mark's passion. This is Mark's purpose in these encounters that he shows us. He's revealing, that Jesus, he's revealing Jesus to us by showing us his life, his death, and his resurrection. In our text today, I want us to see something a little different. I want to show you today how Jesus encounters us through the people in the text we just read about. There are four people, and I'm going to try to do this quickly so you guys can get it all done. There are four people that I want us to focus on. The first one is a guy named Simon of Cyrene. Then there's a group of people, the woman at the cross. Then the centurion. And finally, Joseph of Arimathea. So those are the four people I want us to really look into. And as we look into it, not necessarily see Jesus encountering the people as a way he just encounters them, but actually see ourselves in these people. Simon of Cyrene. Simon was from a region called Cyrene, that's why he's called Simon of Cyrene, which is in North Africa, about modern-day Libya. He was most likely a diaspora Jew, which is basically a Jew who left at some point, maybe his parents, maybe his grandparents, left at some point in the diaspora, maybe even way before. It could be at any point, but he's a diaspora Jew, and with a name like Simon, which is actually a Greek version of the Jewish name Simeon. Not only is he identified, but also his children are identified, which is kind of weird, isn't it? Like, here's Simon, father of Alexander and Rufus. Does it say that anywhere else like that in the book of Mark? I mean, this is very, it stands out, because this guy is only mentioned in one verse. He's mentioned his name and his children's name. And, I don't know, for me, that just jumps out. And I was like, oh, I wonder why he does that. And so we looked into it. I looked into some, some people and looked into some um, scholars and commentaries. And this is what they say. Most scholars believe that the book of Mark was written, was writing his gospel for the Christians out of Rome. So gospel of Mark, Mark was writing for the Christians that lived in Rome. Well, in the Roman church, there was a man named Rufus who was a believer. And many scholars believe it's the same Rufus that is mentioned here. So if you guys look, if you want to, you can turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 16. You don't have to. But in Romans chapter 16, it actually mentions greeting Rufus. Many scholars believe this is the same Rufus because Mark is writing to the Roman Christians. So he's writing this and saying, hey, look, Rufus, his father was here. So if you guys want to know anything about this, if you want to like, hey, check it out. It's like, if I'm telling a story, and it might sound a little far-fetched, might be a little tall tale, like, like hey, Nathan and I um, were out for a walk yesterday, and we saw a monkey jump out of a tree and punched a man and took his wallet and ran away. Sounds a little far-fetched. But I said his name, so you can be like, well, it sounds far-fetched, but maybe I should go ask Nathan about this. There's a level of credibility. I, as a matter of fact, th that actually happened. I was in Kuala Lumpur, and Erica was there, and so was Arthur and Dylan and Aaron. And a monkey actually stole a bag from a woman and took out it, the wallet and its everything, phone and everything and tried to steal a bunch of stuff. I think there's an underground monkey ring stealing stuff in Kuala Lumpur. 
Now, that sounds far-fetched, but I, made, I mentioned all these names. Now you can say, well, Erica, Lawrence has a tendency to exaggerate over there. Uh, did that really happen? And you guys know Erica. And Erica's like, it actually happened. Here's Mark, and he's writing to the people he knows. He's writing to Roman Christians. And he literally says, guys, this is Simon. This is the father of Rufus and Alexander, people you know. Rufus, he's there. Why don't you ask him what his father told you about it? Why don't you ask him about this whole situation? Maybe Rufus was even there. Maybe he was a kid. You don't know how old Rufus was. We don't, we don't know this whole situation. It's amazing to see that I can't even imagine what it would be like if my dad was like, you know, son, I carried the cross. I carried the cross. When, when Jesus was whipped so much, when he lost so much blood that he wasn't able to carry the wooden beam, when he was whipped to the point of almost death, his, he was, his body was so weak, not because I was anything special, not because I was more powerful or somebody holy or religious, but just because a Roman guard said, you, just carry the cross. I carried it. I can't imagine what that would do to me, you know, as a, as a son hearing my father saying he carried the cross. Now, I say that on a complete side note. That's exactly what I want my son to say one day. I would love for my son one day, as he's a follower of Jesus, as he's walking, and he's saying, my dad carried the cross. My dad carried Jesus' cross. I hope that's what our children say about all of us. And when they look at their father, they can say, he carried the cross. Simon was someone who was probably Jewish by culture and upbringing, even though he was in another place and region. His family was probably in Jerusalem on a religious journey or pilgrimage. While there, he came face to face with Jesus and carried the cross. We don't know exactly what happened to Simon after this, but for me, I would like to believe that this experience changed him. We see that his son is a believer and part of the church in Rome. So for me, I'd like to believe that when Simon came face to face with Jesus, when he placed the cross and the beam upon his shoulder, when he saw the man that was beaten to the point of death, that was still striving, that was still willingly walking forward to embrace crucifixion, that changed this man. We see, at the very least, that it changed his son. We see that his son is a follower of the way. Simon reminds me of many of us who are here. Maybe the type of people who grew up culturally hearing about Jesus. He's, he grew, grew up culturally Jewish. Maybe some of the ones who maybe grew up hearing about the stories or following good moral upbringing, willing to go on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. But like that, especially in America and the South, there are many people I feel like who are just like Simon, who maybe grew up hearing about this idea of religion. But it wasn't until he came face to face with Jesus. It wasn't until he was willing to bear the cross that his life changes. Guys, I want you to see something here that so many, as we often so often miss, is that so many of us, especially in America and the South, we grow up often hearing about Jesus, right? Or at the very least, he's kind of in the background. You know, he's, he might be a curse word that somebody says, or he might be, uh, don't do that, or you go to hell, or, or whatever it may be. It's kind of cultural background type stuff. But let me tell you something. That cultural background type stuff is not the saving stuff. Cultural background stuff is not the life-changing stuff. The life-changing stuff is coming face-to-face -face with Jesus and being willing to bear and carry the cross that he's called us to carry. 
You know, I think often the question that we ask when we talk to people, when we, when we kind of share our faith with people, we often ask, well, do you know Jesus? Do you, do you believe in him? Well, the, the demons believe in Jesus. They proclaim him as Lord, right? I think the question more often is, are we willing to bear the cross that he bore? And I think for us that happens only when we come face to face with him. And this is what changes the world. This is what changes everything. There's another Simon in the book of Mark, by the way. His name was Simon, but it was later changed to Peter. And in Mark chapter 8, this Simon proclaims Jesus as the Christ. He makes his bold proclamation. He says, you are the Christ, right? After he does so, Jesus then says, well, this Christ, the Son of Man, will suffer many things. Then Simon Peter rebukes Jesus. He's like, uh-uh, Jesus, what are you talking about? And then Jesus looks at him and literally calls Simon Peter Satan. And then goes on to say this, For anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. Isn't that crazy where another Simon who made a proclamation of the Christ, but the idea of bearing the cross was like, uh-uh. And Jesus says, that's wrong, that is Satan. But then comes another Simon later who literally bears, bears the cross of Christ. Simon, Simon physically did what Jesus was calling Simon Peter to do. That is to truly believe and to follow Jesus is to take up the cross. N.T. Wright says this, following Jesus is more or less Mark's definition of what being a Christian means. I'll say it again. Following Jesus is more or less Mark's definition of what being a Christian means. And Jesus is not leading us on a pleasant afternoon hike, but a walk into danger and risk. Or did we suppose that the kingdom of God would mean, would mean merely a few minor adjustments in our ordinary lives? I'll say that again. Following Jesus is more or less Mark's definition of what being a Christian means. And Jesus is not leading us on a pleasant afternoon hike, but on a walk into danger and risk? Or did we suppose that the kingdom of God would mean merely a few minor adjustments to our ordinary lives? Can I just say a prophetic word here in our, into our culture, in America, in Christianity? It's often, that is, I think, what we honestly, so many of us honestly believe about following Jesus is. Just a few minor adjustments into our regular lives. You know, we'll add Jesus on and kind of like, we'll throw the church thing on like we throw on like a PTA responsibility, right? We'll throw the church on like we throw on other, like a job or volunteer opportunity that we're supposed to do. Or we'll add minor adjustments. Can we tell you something? What N.T. Wright is saying, what Mark is saying, what following Jesus literally means is bearing his cross. And it's not just a pleasant walk. Can I tell you, it's good. It is good. We celebrated that today. It is good, but it is also suffering and embracing the cross. Colossians 1.24 says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. Literally, Paul is saying that I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Literally, he's saying, I am taking on what Christ's suffering lacked. It sounds weird to say it that way. But what that literally means is that Christ, he finished his work upon the cross. He bore it. But there is further work that he could have finished, but instead he says, I want you to finish. And the way we finish it is by actually bearing the cross that Christ bore and taking it to the people who need to see it. Because what people need to see 
is Jesus bearing the cross. It's what Simon saw. And so what they need to see then is us who are followers, who are imitators, who are called to look like Jesus, to live like Jesus. They need to see us bearing the cross so they can come face to face with him. Does that make sense? Are you following me so far? Simon and Cyrene is so often us in many ways in this culture. The second people that Jesus encountered were the women at the cross. It's not a person, it's a group of people. When it comes to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, the only followers of Jesus who are with him through all three of these things are his female followers. It's only women we can see where they, when he, there were only women there when we see when he died. Women saw where he was buried. And in chapter 16, verse 1, women were the only ones who actually saw him first, resurrected in the empty tomb. It's like literally the men and the disciples disappeared during this whole narrative. And it's just the women who are there. Very, very interesting. I mean, honestly, this is so interesting because if the disciples made up this whole story, they were very stupid. Right? If the whole account of the resurrection and this whole crucifixion was to be made up story, they were stupid to use women. Because during that time period, in Jewish and Roman culture, women's testimony had no legal bearing. Like, they're literally, their testimony was worthless. So if a woman said, no, 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 that man punched me, or that person stole something from me, and the woman was the only one who saw it, they'd be like, your word means nothing. They were deemed so low that their word meant nothing. There was a, kind of a universal understanding across these cultures that women were inferior and unreliable. Yet in spite of this, this is who God chooses to use at the most crucial time in history to be the ultimate witnesses. The most crucial time of all of history, the disciples are turned tail and ran away. Peter denied Jesus, but the women are at the cross. The women are there when the body gets taken down, and the women are there when the body gets buried, and the women are there when the resurrection is announced. God trusts a group of women with the whole story. They're the lifeline of the gospel. Nobody else knows what's going on. Only the women see, and the women know what God is up to. God makes women his witnesses at a time in history in which no other society would have trusted them with the same job. Nobody else would have. Why did God? It means that God esteems the ones that the world doesn't esteem. He lifts the lowly and the oppressed. He gives worth to those whom the world has no worth or value. And maybe that's you today. Maybe you feel that you're part of an oppressed group. Maybe you feel that you have no worth or value. Maybe you feel powerless. Can I tell you something? Jesus gives you worth. How? This is going to sound strange, but I'll tell you how. He gives you worth by embracing the cross. See, the only people who followed Jesus that was still there to watching him be crucified, it was the woman. Like I said, the disciples ran off. Peter denied him. But the woman stayed to watch Jesus die. They embraced his crucifixion. In the crucifixion, they saw that their sin and enmity was placed upon the broken body of Jesus. They felt and embraced the reality that their darkness, their sinfulness, their lowliness was completely taken away by the completed work of Jesus on the cross. And when their sin is taken away, the worthlessness is taken away, they saw that, they, that Jesus found them so worthy that he was willing to die for them, they saw dignity and worth. 
that brings equality and true justice. They saw that they could actually be known and they can be loved. And that changes their whole identity. Do you see that today? Maybe you, wherever you're at, whatever's happening in your life, maybe you feel that you have no worth. Maybe you feel that you are lowly. Maybe you feel that you're down. Maybe you're below. Maybe whatever it may be. Maybe you feel, or maybe you don't feel that way. Maybe you've just been pushed into that position. Can I tell you that in embracing the cross, can you see that your dignity is found in Jesus. It's when you see that your sin and your guilt is placed upon him and he found you worthy to die for your sin that then now you can be truly known and you can be truly, truly loved. Are you embracing the crucifixion? The third person I want us to look at is the centurion. He was a soldier. He was a pagan. He was a Roman. Wasn't a Jew, wasn't a diaspora Jew, wasn't a woman. At least, at least a woman and Simon and Cyrene were at least Jews, right? This was a complete pagan. This was not only was he a pagan, he was a part of the oppressing government. Not only was he a pagan, but he was a soldier of the oppressing government. He's the one that everybody's got to hate, right? He's the one that's got to be like, you of all people, like, we hate you, we'd love to see you die kind of situation. You're the soldier of the one that's put us down. You're the one that's killed our people. He's the pagan. And here it says here in verse 38, or 39, and when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man is the son of God. He gets it. It wasn't a sarcastic statement. He wasn't like, well, truly, well, obviously, this guy, he died. He's obviously the son of God. Ha, ha, ha. He's making a proclamation. He says, truly, this man is the son of God. Can we talk about shock value over an event? This is not who's supposed to get it, by the way. He's a pagan. He's a Roman. He's an oppressor. He's a soldier. He's a killer. He's not the one who's supposed to get it. He's not the one that's supposed to understand that Jesus is, is the way. He's the son of God, that this is the gospel. He shouldn't get the gospel. This is shock value. It's shocking because the cross would be the last place to discover that Caesar was actually losing his power and announcing another kingdom. After all, it's the last place, a most unlikely place where you're at your lowest, where a Roman who uses the crucifixion as pushing down and people out of power will proclaim another king. But he proclaims and shouts out, this is the Son of God. In the book of Mark, actually, there's only a few other times that the proclamation is made, Jesus is the Son of God. Anybody know where or what? Who says it? Anybody? Other than Daniel. Other than Danny. <laughs> Leslin? Beautiful. That's exactly right. Who, who professes it? A demon. A demon says this is the son of God. Lot, the Jews were missing it. They weren't getting it. But in the very beginning, Mark proclaims, in the very beginning of book Mark 1, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. He makes a proclamation from the very beginning, but throughout the whole book, the Jews completely miss it. They're not getting it. They're not proclaiming him as the son of God. But the demons are like, yeah, that's the son of God. You guys don't get it, but we, we understand. That's the son of God. But then he comes towards the end of the whole book, comes a pagan, comes a man who's not supposed to get it, and he gets it, and he says this, is the Son of God. Maybe you are here today 
and you're skeptical. Maybe you grew up in a culture that had never professed Christ. You have no idea what Christianity is all about. You kind of, you're only here because somebody drags you here or whatever it may be. Maybe, maybe you're here and you just have like, I don't know about this whole God, religion, Jesus, church, whole thing. But when you saw, when the centurion saw the way Jesus lived and died, he made a bold and bold, big proclamation. He said, this is the son of God. May you see through the cross to the working of God and may make you proclaim Jesus is the Son of God. See, here's what made the pagan proclaim. Is that way when he died, this is what Jesus said. This is what it says right here. It says, And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two and from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this, this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly this man is the Son of God. When he saw the willing way that Jesus was to die, when he saw the willingness that he was to walk, walk to the cross, when he saw with the breath that he didn't curse his enemies, when he saw that the temple being torn into the power of God, he said, this is the Son of God. Can I tell you something? Some of you guys, it's going to be hard to hear this, but some of you guys are going to lead others because of the way you die. Because of the way you're called to die. But most of us, all of us, are going to be called to show others by the way we live. Are we living in such a manner that the pagan and the unbeliever will say there's something different? Truly, they know God. Last person I want us to look at is Joseph of Arimathea. We're told in verse 43, Joseph of Arimathea is a prominent member of the council who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God. And he went with courage to Pilate after Jesus' body. So here's what we know about Joseph. A lot of information there. It's really interesting stuff. Joseph was prominent, which means powerful. We know that from Matthew's gospel that he was very rich, which is also kind of implied here in Mark. But we also learn from John's gospel that Joseph of Arimathea was a friend of Nicodemus. Nicodemus was also a member of the ruling council. So Joseph and Nicodemus was a prominent member of the council. Um, was also wealthy, and, but Nicodemus was a Pharisee. So both Joseph and Nicodemus were Pharisees, but not just Pharisees, but important Pharisees. Not just important Pharisees, they're a part of the ruling council. Here's what's interesting. A Pharisee, an important person, a centurion, a pagan believer, lowly, lowly, the women who are considered lowly and unimportant, a diaspora Jew, they all come here, and there's a contrast between all of them. And there's a change happening in all their hearts. In Joseph, you see it happening here. Joseph goes to Pilate and asks for the body of Jesus. Why? And it also says, with courage, with great courage, it says here, Joseph Arimathea, who also himself, looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate. It takes Unbelievable courage. Why would that take courage? Because the Romans had just tried Jesus and found him guilty. The Sanhedrin found him guilty of blasphemy. He was there. Joseph was probably there in the council meetings when the Sanhedrin were gathering together and saying, let's condemn this guy. He's blasphemous. He's not who he says he is. He's a traitor to our cause and our religion. Joseph was probably in there. So all his friends, all his buddies, all his council members, all saying, down with Jesus. So he's like, ooh, what am I going to do? The Roman government who's in power said, let's crucify him. 
So he says boldly because it had to take such courage to go in face of everybody, the ones who condemned this man, the one who put him down and said, can I have his body? Can I have his body? Jesus, Joseph believed in Jesus. He followed him. But he probably didn't want anybody to know that he followed him. It was dangerous for him. But he was willing to take that danger to risk everything to bury him. What I want you to get is this. Joseph embraced the body of Christ. In ancient times in Palestine, when a person died and was being buried, what they did was they washed the body, wrapped it in linen, anointed it with spices and perfumes. Um, it wasn't like embalming the way the Egyptians did it. That's more a fuller kind of context. It was just more of a washing and then anointing and wrapping. It's an act of love. It's a final act of devotion of a loved one. But it's dirty. To take down a dead body, a cadaver that had been beaten, guts were coming out of, was incredibly stomach-turning, dirty, loathsome, awful job. The people who did in that society were often the slaves or the women. The lowly ones in this society were made to do this awful, gruesome job. It was women's work. It was slaves' work. Men didn't do it. Especially prominent, important men didn't do it. But here's Joseph. Prominent, important man, rich man, respected man, risking everything, taking the body of Jesus down, washing it himself, and wrapping it. There's women around. He could have easily ordered any one of them to come do this instead. But it says he did it. If Joseph was like everybody else, the way he probably was normally, he could easily have been, no, this is below me. This is below my dignity level. This is for the slave to do. He doesn't do it. He does something incredibly culturally inappropriate. He's not standing on dignity. It's not what's important to him. What's important is Jesus. He's embracing the body. He's humbling himself. That's what happens when you embrace the broken body of Jesus. People, can I tell you, that so many of us right now, I truly believe this, we're more like Joseph of Arimathea, right? We think we're pretty good. We have good religious standing. We're found in good favor. We, we go to church and we're part of good groups of people. We have good moral ground. And maybe you're wealthy, maybe you're prominent, whatever it may be. But so often we think we're doing so good. What we often don't do, we often don't stoop to embrace the body of Jesus Christ. We often don't do the dirty work. To humble ourselves, to not consider ourselves better than anybody else and to embrace the body. Guys, can I tell you something? And this is something that for me, I'm just like, oh, I want to hear, I need to hear like every moment and every day of my life. Is when you embrace the body, when you lower yourself and you see the broken body of Jesus and when you embrace that, you see the cost of your sin and you come face to face with the goodness of the gospel. And when you humble yourself, and when you embrace the body, you're naturally humbled, and then this is what happens. Naturally, the reaction to that is when you lower yourself, and do not consider yourself better, the natural result of that is justice in the world. The natural result of that is you becoming more like Jesus, who is the perfect example of this humility. The natural result of you embracing the body of Jesus 
is you becoming more like him. And what happens when you become more like him, the kingdom of God advances. Injustice is on the street. Grace and mercy flow out. I remember Josh, Pastor Josh was talking to me about a sermon that he preached last week. Uh, we talked about it before the sermon. And he was talking about being broken and being poured out. And I remember there's three things I pray before every sermon I preach. Just kind of like, a, I mean, this is something I do. It's not a ritual, but it's just something I pray. It's been a habit of mine. And one is, um, Jesus, you're the vine. I, only when me, the branch, is attached to you, the vine, can I bear fruit. So Jesus, may I be attached to you. The second one is the, the John the Baptist statement where he must become greater, I must become less. And the last one I always pray is, God, can I just be nothing more than a broken vessel? That what's broken out of me is you. What comes pouring out when I'm broken, this vessel is broken, it's just, it's just more of you, Holy Spirit. And I love the fact that when, if you look at human beings, you look at humankind, what often happens is when the world breaks us, when stuff happens in our lives where we lose a job, uh, something bad happens, we get into traffic, whatever it may be, when something bad happens, when the world breaks us, what comes pouring out of us is uh, anger, hatred, bigotry, spite, envy, Right? Isn't that what happened? That's what kind of comes out of us so often. But what happened when Jesus was broken, his body was broken and his blood poured out, what came out of him? Salvation, grace, mercy. Guys, when we embrace the body, when we embrace the body, we see that this is the working of, of the Holy Spirit and of love. When we embrace the body and see what that, what that says and what that does to us, when we embrace the body, and then what starts to happen is the Holy Spirit moves in us, makes us more into the likeness of Jesus. And as that's happening, what's inside of us is that when we get broken, what comes out is the Holy Spirit. What comes out is grace. What comes out is justice. What comes out is peace and mercy. Guys, this is... It's, it's almost like a, like a, 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 a formula for like taking over, uh, like you ever play Risk before? Anybody ever play Risk? Right. I love the game Risk. I love board games. I love strategy games. And in my mind, what I often like to do, you know, you, you kind of like build up your resources. And, you know, it's that one time where you get the extra, extra armies and you're like, this is my time and I'm going to go. And you have a strategy. I gotta go here, conquer this, conquer this, and you go over here. Jesus had this incredible strategy. It looks so different. It's not chariots, it's not horses, it's not swords, it's not spears. He has this incredible strategy of advancing the kingdom. It's making disciples. But here's the incredible thing. What a disciple is is someone who looks and lives like Jesus. And the way we do that is by looking like these four people. It's by embracing the cross to carry us on our own. It's, it's by embracing the body. It's by embracing the crucifixion. Do you see? And the power to do all of this is so incredible. Centurion saw that the, the veil was torn in two. The temple was, was broken and the veil was torn in two. The power, that give, the power that we have to carry the cross, to live out life, to, the power that is given to us so that when we're broken, what doesn't come out is spite, anger. The power that's given to us so that when we're broken, comes out love and peace and justice. That power is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is in you as a follower and believer. It is a promised counselor that you have. You have full power now to live in such a manner. So will you, will you see Jesus the way Simon did? Will you embrace the crucifixion the way the women did? 
Will you see the purpose of the cross the way the centurion did, proclaim him as son of God? And will you embrace the body the way Joseph of Arimathea did so that you can carry the cross every day? Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for, God, your good and great work. Jesus, that you encounter us, God, by showing us ourselves in these characters in the Bible. God, that you encounter us and reach us wherever we're at, wherever's happening in our background, that you know us and you reach us, God, that we can be known and loved by you. God, we thank you that you've called us to relationship with you. God, we thank you that our identity is found in you. So God, may we see you. May we embrace your crucifixion. May we embrace your body. May we proclaim you as Son of God. And may we carry the cross. In Jesus' name, amen.